Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead, and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And what you're about to listen to was a sermon that was preached at our Wednesday night gathering from 6.30 to 8.30 with our students. So I hope that this sermon is encouraging and a blessing to you today. Thanks for listening. We've already preached through Daniel 8. We have two more sermons to go in the book of Daniel. It's uh, nice to be in a new space, but it's just a space. Uh, What makes this ministry uh, awesome is the Word of God, is the fellowship, is the community, and I hope that each and every one of you can have that here. If you don't have good, solid friendships at school or at home or with family, I pray that you would find them here and that it would be a genuine community, one that isn't based off of one's performance, one's looks, uh, one's achievements, but that it would be a community that is centered and on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, because in this room, the gospel teaches us that we are all sinners before a holy God. And there's not any, no one is better than the other person to their right or to their left. We're before God, we're sinners in need of a savior. And if you're a believer, we're all one in Christ, right? And so I pray that the gospel would create a community here amongst you um, that would birth out true friendships, lifelong friendships, um, ones that outlast this ministry. So Daniel chapter 11, that has nothing to do with my sermon, but I'm just encouraged by you and glad that you're here. Daniel 11, we're going to be looking at Daniel 11 all the way to chapter 12. It is the longest chapter in the whole book of Daniel, and uh, we'll see how this goes. Christians from every century, from Paul, from Christ, all the way down, even from the Old Testament, have believed that God is sovereign. I know I've talked about this. Our, my series title is Our God Reigns. He is sovereign. He is the king. But more specifically, A.W. Pink, a theologian. How would you like to have the last name Pink? Like the singer. Um, Just kidding. Um, A.W. Pink, he says this about God's sovereignty. He says, God's sovereignty is that he, God, is the most high, Lord of heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, Absolutely independent, God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, and only as he pleases. So if God is sovereign, according to that definition and according to the Bible's uh, witness and Daniel's witness, really, over all things, um, and he is involved in all things, if he's sovereign over everything, how does it make sense or how does that how does the exercise of this sovereignty take place in our everyday life? How does that apply? Okay, God is sovereign. Okay, he's this big and mighty God. He's, he's in control of all things. But isn't he a God that is also relational, right? Who's involved, who saves, and who uh, turns evil to good or uses evil for our good, who works all things for the good of those who love us. So how does God exercise his sovereignty over everyday life? And this is an important question, and I could answer the question by giving you two errors, two false doctrines that have a view of God's involvement in the earth. The first is called deism. Deism, 
which basically can be summarized in the view that God is so big and so mighty, he's just far off. He's not involved. Like a watchmaker, God is kind of like a watchmaker for the deists, who uh, he created the world, he kind of winds up the watch, right? He created the world, and then he just lets go and lets it take its course. And we'll see what happens. And God is up there, you know, binge-watching, I don't know, Mandalorian, just having a good time, not involved, and kind of... You know, biting his nails. Oh no, I hope mankind doesn't do that. Oh no, what, if, what am I going to do about this? He's a God that's not involved. That's deism. There's another false belief of God's view of how he exercises his, how he governs man, mankind and all creation, and it's called pantheism. It's a view that God is near, but more than near, that the world is the manifestation of God. <laughs> so God is the world and everything and all of you and everything from a tree to a rock to an animal to a dog but not a cat has the spark of a divinity within it. I was just kidding. It's a joke. Um, and uh, it has the pantheists believe that everything created has this, this spark of divinity. So you are, in a sense, part divine. Everything is part divine. And God is the first cause, the only cause of all things, right? And so God is near. He's not transcendent. He's not big. So you have these two polar opposites. But the Bible, Scripture's testimony, is one that describes God as being transcendent, above all, big, mighty, unlike, unlike us, different, while at the same time imminent, meaning involved in everyday life. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. He is sovereign. He is working all things for the good of those who love him, Romans 8.28, right? And so we have a God who's big and sovereign, but one who's also relational and near and involved in governing everyday life. And so the word that describes the exercise of God's sovereignty, here's a new word, is God's providence. Have you heard that before? Providence. That God governs all mankind through his providence. Now, what is providence? Because the book of Daniel is all about God's sovereignty. It's all about God's providence. If you think about it, Daniel and his, and his people are in exile, right? God, where are you? Aren't you sovereign over this? And it's Daniel chapter 1. God gave them over, you know. There's, uh, uh, God gave them over into exile. God is involved. He's He's leading his people through the exile. He's saving them. He's, he's seeing uh, three of his children in the fiery furnace, and he's, he's actively involved. Right? He's, he's sovereign over it all, but he's also near. The book of Daniel is all about that, right? We see that all over the text and all over this book, and that's encouraging. But what do I mean by providence if I could give you a summarized definition? The Heidelberg Catechism puts it this. This is what, this is what providence is. It's the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures. So God is ever-present. He's almighty, and he upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and he rules them that even the leaf and the blade of grass, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, he rules over all things. In fact, they come to us not by chance, but by a fatherly hand. All of those things that I mentioned to you come from, from God. God is involved. He's working all of those things, even our suffering, even the exile for his glory. 
it's, I'm trying to fit this in 30 minutes, but John Piper just wrote a whole book on the providence of God and it's 700 pages, okay? It's a big topic, but it's, it's a comforting one. And that's why the title of my sermon, or Daniel chapter 11, is, I've titled it, His Story, like history. It's really his story. And Daniel chapter 11 is a clear demonstration of the future, or God has given a prophecy of the future, and that he is governing and in control of all things. And this is important for you and I to understand, because the God's providence is a sweet, comforting, encouraging, emboldening doctrine that helps us and encourages us to live for Jesus in these dark days. When we are tired, when we are in despair, when we are giving up hope, we need to remember that God is not a God who's so far off that he's not involved, but perhaps he's using these things for our good. That's encouraging. And Daniel 11 was written to these exiles to remind them of God's sovereignty, of God's uh, providence to encourage them. And so I can't spend every waking moment on Daniel chapter 11 here, but I want to draw out some encouragements that the providence of God gives to us as we walk the Christian life. And perhaps you are here tonight and you are not a Christian, but nonetheless, you may need encouragements. Maybe you need to, I hope that you would come to see the hope that we Christians have uh, uh, pertaining to this life. And I pray that that hope would become yours in Jesus Christ. So to bring you up to speed, if you guys remember, a month ago, I talked about Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10, uh, I told you then that Daniel 10 and 12 make up the final section of the book of Daniel. And it's the final vision and the final conflict. Okay, in Daniel chapter 10, if you remember, Daniel is, uh, sees this vision and then he, has this, he sees this vision of this angelic being wearing priestly garments, and Daniel is, falls flat on his face. He could hardly get up. He's being encouraged, right? And we see at the very end, uh, the angel saying to him in verse 19 of chapter 10, he says, O man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And he's, as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return and fight the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these things except Michal, your prince. And as for me, verse 1, chapter 11, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up and, and up to confirm and strengthen Daniel. And now I will show you the truth. Okay? And so... Daniel chapter 11, then, is a precise, detailed account of basically the future of kings leading up to Antiochus Epiphanes, Epiphanes IV. You guys remember him? He slaughtered a pig in the, in the temple. He slaughtered tons of Jews. He was a terrible, awful king. And so chapter 10, or chapter 11, describes him more in detail and then ends describing actually the Antichrist and the second coming of Christ and the future resurrection hope that we have. And so that's what Daniel, or Daniel chapter 11, as we will see, is a prophecy of future details. And you should read it on your own time, and I would encourage you to do so with a study Bible. And so we're going to act like a snorkeler tonight. I can't be a, uh, I, I'm going to be diving down into certain parts of the chapter 
come up for air, dive back down. But if we were to stay at the bottom through this chapter, we would all drown because there's so many details, okay? So to give you a rough outline, I know I'm giving you background. Stick, stick with me. It's one of the hardest. I, I almost did not preach on this, but I think it's, there's some things here. Here's the rough outline. So look at your Bibles. Verses 1 through 20 in chapter 11 depict in precise detail ancient Near Eastern history from the time of Daniel until the time of Antiochus IV, the one who will come in 175 BC. It's like 365 BC right now. So 200 years God gives Daniel a clear picture of the rise and fall of kings leading up to Antiochus. And it's precise. Even liberal scholars think there's no way Daniel could have written this before this time. But God is giving a prophecy. And all of these things came to pass. And so I would encourage you, because of the immense details in this section, to pick up a study Bible. That's why you should have an ESV study Bible or a Reformation study Bible. And go through it. Look at the charts and study it. It's really fascinating. And if there's anything that we learn from verse 1 through 20, we learn this from one commentator. He says this. On the level, it is the continual story, verses 2 through 20, is the continual story of wars and rumors of wars. And as one human ruler and empire after another seeks to gain power by cunning or force... Yet though the tide in the affairs of men comes in and goes out in the end, it accomplishes precisely nothing. The balance of power in earthly politics may shift, but it never comes to a permanent rest. On the one hand, therefore, Daniel 11 shows us the fallen world pursuing the wind and finding it elusive. What do power and politics gain for all of their toil? And that's exactly what happens. In verses 1 through 20, uh, the angel depicts multiple kings that come, they rise to power, and then they go. They rise to power, then they go. Reagan's president, and then Clinton's president. And then the Republicans happen, and then Obama's president. And then it's like things come and go. They always change, right? It's the same. Nations have come and go, but God's kingdom will last forever. And so this section, if you were to study it, it shows us, one, the absolute futility of the world and its search for power, affirmation, and salvation in itself. And second, this section of history, of this prophecy, is to show God's people that he is in control and that he is um, governing all things for his glory. Okay? God is in control over all future and past history. That's what that teaches us. Now, the second section, okay, describes the rule of Antiochus with a specific look at how he persecutes God's people. And then verses uh, that's verses 21 through 35. So let's read it together, and this is where we're going to camp for some time. Verses 20. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor or of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person, Antiochus, to whom royal majesty has not been given. He actually gains it by a few coups. 
he, through deceit and through uh, wiggling his way to power like Loki. Exactly like it, like Loki, but far worse, okay, in a, in a lot of ways. Because um, Loki kind of is redeemed, and that's Antiochus is not redeemed. So, bad illustration. So, more like Thanos, I guess. Um, so, he, uh, it says, um, it has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken even the prince of the covenant. So that is a reference to the high priest at the time of Jerusalem, which he slaughtered and assassinated. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods, he shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. See, God's saying, not, not forever, only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plot shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And for, as for those two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for their end is yet to be at, at the time appointed. Again, God appoints the time that death comes. And he shall return to the land with great wealth, but his heart, Antiochus' heart, shall be set against the holy covenant, the holy land, God's holy people. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. Let's continue on. I know. It's a lot here. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south. But it shall not be this time as it was before, for ships of Kittim shall come against him. The Romans stop Antiochus. This actually happened. And he shall be afraid. Antiochus is afraid. And he withdraws and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against God's people. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. So he... Deceive. So what happens is with the Jews is he deceives some of them into following him, right? Uh, if I'm trying to think. There's so many illustrations of this from, from movies, right? Um, kind of like Edmund in uh, Chronicles of Narnia, the witch deceives him into following her. So in the same way, there were Jews that were, that were faithful to God's word, but he deceives them, pulls them away, and then uses the same Jews to attack their own people. That's what is happening here. Verse 30, uh, verse 31, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people, here's the main point here, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end. There will be an end to the suffering. 
for it still awaits the appointed time. I want to focus in on verse 32 of God's people in the midst of persecution. What do they do? They've probably read this passage. They know that it's coming. And so God's providence, point number one, geez, I got to end in five minutes, emboldens us to take a stand. God's providence emboldens us to take a stand. All of us are facing some sort of temptation. All of us are facing some sort of trial. And that's weird. Brett, oh, it's hot in here. That was Brett. The Holy Spirit opens the door. All of us are facing some sort of trial, right? Some temptation, some sin, some persecution in small ways. You know, it doesn't just start off with Antiochus coming and bringing suffering and great persecution. It probably started small for God's people in small ways. But if we remember that God is sovereign over all things, even over trials, even with us during times of persecution, it can embolden us. It can give us courage to make a stand during times where we feel tempted to stand firm. I love what it says in verse 32. He shall seduce with flattery. He seduces some of God's people. But in contrast, the people who know their theology, who know their God, will stand firm. They shall stand firm and they take action. And so now when we are faced with unbelief, when we're faced with being attacked in our culture today, the, the, the call for us from God isn't to pull back, isn't to run in, in hiding like Jonah, but to make a stand. Why? And why can we make a stand? Because God is sovereign. He is in control. He will build his church and the gates of hell will not stand against it, right? That's comforting to know that God isn't like a God in heaven who's like wound up the creation and said, all right, let have at it. He's, he's involved here. And that, why do you think he's writing this chapter to God's people? Why is Daniel 11 in the Bible? It's so that God's people who will go through this have a warning that, look, God has prophesied this, that it will happen, it did happen, and you can be sure that the time will end and that he is in control. That's the application here. I love that. They make a stand. And history tells us that they did. In, in, Macca- in the book of Maccabees, which Jew- the Jews study, but the Maccabean revolt, you've maybe heard of it. They did make a stand. And they actually had a victory. It's pretty cool. First Peter 5.8 says this. Be sober-minded, Christians. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith. That's the application for us. We're in a spiritual warfare, and we're called to resist temptation, to resist the devil, to stand firm. How do we resist him? By actively pursuing God, resting in God, trusting in God, and taking God at his worth by faith, confidence in his promises. And when we trust the Lord, true saving faith will demonstrate itself by our faithfulness in trial. 
So God's providence emboldens us. That's the first thing. Second thing, God's providence comforts us in suffering. It comforts us in suffering. Look at verses 32 and on. He says, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. But some will stumble, right? And the wise among the people shall make many understand. They're discipling. Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many will join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble. It's going to be hard. There's going to be suffering. But why? So that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the end of the time. For still awaits the appointed time. God's providence comforts us in our suffering. How? One, our suffering is not purposeless. There's a purpose behind it. It's doing something. What does it say in the text? Look at verse 35. So that they may be refined. You know, that's, that's, that's fire language. That's, uh, you know, how they refine gold, right? How you get a pure, pure gold. You put it in fire and then... What happens is the impurities, when, when the gold melts, the impurities float to the top. What they do is they take a little scooper and they scoop all the impurities out so that you have the purest gold. That's exactly what suffering does, right? It, as you walk through fiery trials, they're meant to refine us, to purify us. Suffering is not only purposeless, but it's temporary, right? It says, until the time of the end. This is the only suffering in this life that we're going to face is, is now. And suffering is for our good. We know that from Romans 8.28. How does God's providence comfort us in suffering? To know that God is in control. I don't know if many of you know about this. But a year ago, Caitlin and I miscarried. So Caitlin was pregnant. That was March, uh, around March, almost a year ago. And uh, we, we had a baby stead on the way. And the baby died in the womb. Probably one of the most painful things we've walked through together. Um, and at first, it's really easy to question God, right? I know God's sovereign. Questioning God's goodness, though. God, why? Why this pain? Why suffering? Don't you want that? Isn't that good? You've told us, multiply, fill the earth. It's the command that you gave us. Why? How is God's providence and sovereignty comforting in those times? Hmm. Well, I can tell you that it's become the most sweet and comforting thing for us. Why? Because I know that we didn't just miscarry, but that our loving Father saw fit to take the baby home. It was from the Father. And he, he wasn't withholding something good from us. He was giving something to us better, allowing us to walk through pain and suffering that we may trust him and see his goodness all the more. Right? And I remember, Caitlin and I, we do family worship every now and then. We need to do it soon. And we've been studying the Heidelberg Catechism. And I love what it says here. It says, how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? 
How does it help us in those times? And I love this answer. It says, it helps us because we could be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future, we could have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing in creation will separate us from His love. For all creatures are so completely in God's hands that without His will, they can never move, neither move or be moved. God works those things for His good that we may see Him and depend on Him and trust on Him even more. And yes, I would love to have a child on this earth, but he is in a much, he or she, I always use he, is in a much, Martin Luther said, is, is in a much better place. He is. She is. But that was such a comfort to us. God's sovereignty and his, his, his providence, because God is not a judge. He's not a disappointed father. He's a good father. And he loves us. He cares for us so that I know that whatever comes my way comes from a fatherly hand that cares and loves for me. Loves me and loves you. It reminds me of Adoniram Judson. He was a missionary to Burma, I believe, a Baptist missionary. And he suffered immensely. He lost both of his wives. So he wasn't married to two people at the same time. He, he had one wife on the mission field. She died. He remarried. And has a kid, both die. I think maybe more of his children die. And there's a scene for a whole year where he buries his wife and he's just weeping. For a whole year, he's depressed and in despair over these hardships. And for 10 years, he labored with the Burmese people. And not one person came to Christ. 10 years. And after all that, this is what he says. If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated suffering. That is the perspective that God is sovereign, that everything that comes our way comes from a fatherly hand. I'm speaking on behalf of the Christian. For you that don't know Jesus... Yes, God can use suffering and trial to wake you up. It says that God's goodness leads to repentance. And I pray that he would. But outside of Christ, you don't believe in God's suffering. It's just a disruption. There is no solution to it. There's no hope for it. Only despair and purposelessness, really. Life is meaningless. But God is sovereign. And so God's providence, as God's people are suffering, they're hearing this. Knowing, you know, even through the worst of suffering... I can be comforted knowing my God is with me and he loves me. Last thing, last thing. Actually, 1 Peter 5, 9, to continue that verse. Resist him, resist the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Lastly, God's providence reminds us of where we are going. It reminds us that God is in control and he's taking all of history to a culminating point when he will wipe away every tear and make all things good and right. Now, this is the third session, section here. Look at verses 36 all the way to chapter 12, verse 4. Verses 36 talks about a king who will exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. He will, verse 37, pay no attention to the gods of his father's, 
or to the one beloved by women. He shall pay no attention to other God, but he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortress instead of these. Um, those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land of, for price. Verses 40. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. So it gets into these weird cryptic language. And so some commentators believe, and I agree with them, that this last section is talking about the Antichrist. The one who will come, the man of lawlessness, 2 Thessalonians 2, who will come and persecute God's people. He's the truer and greater Antiochus. But it ends with such great news because Jesus comes back and will have the victory. All right, look at verse 12. At that time, at that time of the Antichrist uh, shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such has never been seen, uh, has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who looks, sorry, everyone whose name shall be found in, written in the book. Um, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, preserve the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. The main point here is really found in verse 2. Those who fall asleep, they don't die but they shall awake some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. There will be a second resurrection. There will be a judgment when God comes and judges all of his enemies and only those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in God's promises, will be saved, will enter into everlasting life, will, have resurrect, will resurrect just like Jesus did. And so this points us to Jesus Christ in that way, that God sent Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for our sins and he defeated sin, death, and the devil and he rose and he's at the right hand of the Father right now, reigning, reigning. And he will come again and he will exact judgment uh, on, his, on his enemies and he will raise those who have passed to everlasting life and to shame those who reject the Lord. This is our future hope. This is the end to which God is working all things, right? He's going to make all things new. The passage states that it's either everlasting life or everlasting contempt. And there's contempt. There's two of you here. There's two people, those that are in Christ and those that are in Adam. Those that believe and trust in Jesus Christ have repented from your sins and those who are in your sins still. One will die and be with Christ, be forgiven or is forgiven and will have eternal life, the other eternal death. This points us to the cross ultimately where Christ will have the victory of, over resurrection. So this is the message of Daniel 11. God's providence reminds us of where we're going, that this is not the end, but God will make all things new. 1 Peter 5.10, we continue with that verse, resist the devil. And after that, it says this. 
And you, and after you have suffered a little while, Christians, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That is our hope. We remember who's in control, who is sovereign. And let that embolden us to live for God. Let that comfort us in trial. And let that remind us of where we are going, why we're here. We're left here to then spread the gospel, the good news of the resurrection, right? That there is an eternal life. God, thank you so much for this passage. I didn't even feel like do justice to it. But Lord, it's your word. And even these basic principles, I pray it would be an encouragement to the students and that they would be blessed in their conversations, Lord. Um, I pray that each and every one of them here would come to see the great comfort, as Spurgeon called it, the, the sweet pillow, the sovereignty of God, the providence of God is for us Christians here. Lord, that we can have power in evangelism because we know that you are sovereign and you will build your church, you will save your children. Lord, you will bring every single number, every single one that is yours, you will save. You will have the victory. You will get us through our trials. You will wipe away every tear. Lord, uh, I pray that you would embolden us and comfort us and remind us of the great hope that we have in you. And thank you so much for the gospel, um, Lord, which displayed your glory and your ultimate sovereignty over all things. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.